Good morning, everyone. What a delight to be with you. My name is Nelson. It's good to be with you, whether you're here in person at uh, JH or via the live, live stream. Shouts to y'all who are at home. Um, we have arrived at a significant moment in our journey through the liturgical calendar. Uh, we're getting to the end of Lent by entering Holy Week. We don't have a separate sort of sliver of the pie for Holy Week itself, but that's where we are in the grand scheme of things. And the events of Holy Week are so important that although they only cover a span of eight days, they take up an entire third of the pages of the Gospels. So our intention is to walk with Jesus every step of the way. And many parts of the church call today Palm Sunday. Other traditions refer to it as Passion Sunday. Uh, regardless, uh, one of my favorite authors said this, Palm Sunday is tricky. It's full of contradictions. It's the celebration that leads to suffering, the triumphal entry that leads to Calvary. We're gonna explore Palm Sunday in all its trickiness as we go. But before we do that, I wanna share a concept with you, kind of an extended introduction here, something that's been helpful to me in this season, and I promise it does connect with Palm Sunday. So another author I love, Robert Farrar Capon, invites us to think of Holy Week, beginning with the Palm Sunday event, as a series of acted parables. Acted parables, what does he mean? Well, an acted parable is an episode in Jesus' ministry in which his deeds, rather than his words, carry the freight of what he's trying to communicate. An episode in Jesus' ministry in which his deeds, rather than his words, carry the freight of what he's trying to communicate. So Jesus' spoken parables, on one hand, are fictions. They're stories. And our trusting response to them is based strictly on his having made them up. Not on their having been, for example, a literal good Samaritan or a real nobleman who gave money to his servants. Jesus' acted parables, on the other hand, are historical acts. When we encounter one of these, like Palm Sunday, our trusting response depends on his personally having done them. So much so that if we take the view that they're simply stories about Jesus made up by others, they lose the very essence of their authority. So these acted parables, in other words, are a key to understanding the meaning of the whole story. So let's look at this visually. And as we do, let me just say, some people are skilled at reproducing images that you find in a book by like manipulating the artistic merits of Keynote. Uh, some people are good at that. I have other skills. I'm good at pulling out my phone and taking a picture of the image in the book and then cropping that and turning it into a screenshot and then placing it into keynote. So those are, that's where my skill set is, in case anyone was wondering about my visual skill sets. So this line represents the entire history of the world from start to finish, from the moment the universe was created to the end of time, A to Z. So then how might we visualize the acts of God taking place along this timeline? Well, possibly like this. So each descending line then represents an occasion where God comes down. So it's God's interventions or intersections with history. So we'll just take a few examples that are on the screen. Creation, the call of Abraham, the ministry of Moses, 
the birth of Christ, as well as his crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and second coming. The things are going swimmingly. Uh, not only is God like really acting in history, we are also doing justice to the language of the creeds. He came down from heaven, he became incarnate, and so on. But things are also starting to sink. This image looks too much like a divine sewing machine where the needle comes down at a few points and not at others, tacking history to God. As Capon puts it, this is salvation as the divine basting stitch, which means more to those of you who sew than those of us who don't. Even if the thread holds, there is more of creation unsown to its maker and redeemer than there is sown, you see? God's mighty acts amount to little more than occasional transactions, jobs done, and done only at specific points. So this image is helpful as far as the historicity of our faith is concerned. The points where the needle intersects with the fabric of the universe are indeed real times and places and real events. But it is not so helpful as far as the mystery of God's presence within all of history is concerned. The spaces between the needlework still make up most of the world's actual days and years. Do we see the problem? So we need another way to look at it. Gratefully, we have one. This time, let's imagine the whole of history from A to Z as a body of water. Now, what if God is not a divine tailor somewhere up in the heavenlies, dropping down an interventionist needle from time to time, but instead a divine iceberg, present under all of time. In this analogy, one-tenth of God's presence to history is visible above the surface of the waters, and nine-tenths will be invisible or hidden below the surface. But God's presence out of sight will be just as much a part of history as God's presence in broad daylight. Or to put it the other way around, I love this. All of history is thus intimately and immediately present to the mystery of God's entire work and being. Get the difference? History is present to mystery. I just love that. Cape on for the win. So here's how the mystery part might look. Yeah? We got the divine iceberg, God under, all of history. So if we go on then to sketch the mighty acts of God in history, we will not show God coming down from somewhere else to intervene in a process from which God was previously absent. Rather, we will represent God's appearances above the surface of history, God's revelations of the mystery as outcroppings, as emergences into plain view of the tips of the one continuous iceberg beneath all time and all space. So when we visualize that same series of actions, they become not mere forays into history of some alien presence from above, but outcroppings within history of an abiding presence from below. So it looks like this. Isn't that so much better? So the divine acts in history aren't just occasional glimpses of a reality that wasn't there before, they are acted parables. They're sacraments 
real presences of a reality that was there all along. So when we take communion together here on a Sunday, even with our silly single serve containers, which hopefully we'll do away with really soon, when we sing that song that just lands in a particular way, you know the feeling. When, we, when someone offers a prayer that resonates, when we perform these actions in our worship and we're met with that palpable sense of the spirit of Jesus in our midst, they are real events in real time and a real place. But like that same presence, they are not simply an emergence onto the scene from which Jesus was absent. They are manifestations at a specific point of a mystery that was never absent at any point. There's a lot more we could reflect on here, including the fact that this unifying Jesus is everywhere in the Bible way of understanding history isn't new. It's been around a long time, but we need to get to the particulars of Palm Sunday. So let's let Capon have the last word though, before we move on, since I've found this incredibly beautiful and helpful, I trust you did too, at least to some extent. So how would he answer the question, why should we read salvation history this way? Capon says, while it does justice to the immediate presence of the entire eternal mystery to every moment in every scrap of space. It lets God be the creating and redeeming God of all the particulars of history. It does not confine his actions simply to the more notable moments of scripture or even to the moments of scripture alone. It lets you say that not only that Jesus died in the Paschal Lamb and in the death of Lazarus, but also that he died in the deaths of six million Jews during the Holocaust, and for that matter, in all deaths, everywhere and always. Above all, it allows you to proclaim your faith that in the power of his resurrection, he is present to the whole of creation, not just to those who happen to be Christians. In short, it finally makes solid, earthly sense of Jesus' own words, if I be lifted up, that's imagery for the cross, I will draw all to myself. Can I get an amen right now? It's a good word, Capon. So for the next eight days, we're gonna explore the outcropping of the mystery known as Holy Week, beginning with Palm Sunday. So the big question to hold, what is Palm Sunday? What does this acted parable reveal about the whole story? What does it reveal about the Christ who is at the center of that story? So we heard the text once already. I'm gonna walk through it bit by bit, section at a time using the Passion Translation. So verse 28 begins this way. After saying all of this, Jesus headed straight for Jerusalem. Now, if we're reading perceptively, we might ask, all of what? <laughs> what, what came before this? It's a huge question. We don't have a whole lot of time to unpack what came before in any detail, especially because I've taken 10 minutes for an intro. Um, but it's worth briefly noting that there were two main episodes. First, Zacchaeus. Do you remember that guy? A rich tax collector, Roman collaborator, therefore hated by almost everybody, who also happened to be not very tall. Remember? So, but he, he's intrigued by Jesus, and so he climbs up a tree to get a better look. And Jesus sees him 
and invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house for dinner, basically invites him into his life. I remember Tim Keller saying years ago that, you know, we use this language of inviting Jesus into your heart. Here's the one point in scripture where Jesus invited himself into someone's heart and life. I think it happens other places too, but it's pretty explicit here. At the very least, this is a reminder that those who oppress others also need liberation. Yeah? Second of what Jesus said, what came before, the parable of the coins, which I actually take to be a parable not about God's kingdom, but the kind of reality and economy Jesus came to turn upside down. Danny, you and I could have a conversation about that, see what your reading of that one would be, but that's for another time. That's the background against which Jesus now turns deliberately toward Jerusalem. He headed straight for Jerusalem in this translation. You know, there are gospel stories when Jesus said, it's not my time yet. In this verse, it's like he's saying, it's time. Let's go. Let's do this. Next verse, 29. When he arrived at the stables of Aniah near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples ahead saying, when you enter the next village, you will find tethered there a donkey's young colt that's never been ridden. Untie it and bring it to me. If anyone stops and asks, what are you doing? Just tell them this, it is needed for the Lord. Other translations indicate villages of Bethany and Bethphage, and the meaning of those names combined is the stables of Aniah. That's how it's translated in the Aramaic. Speaking of Bible translation, someday, I, I don't know if this will ever happen, but someday I really want to see a heading above this text that reads, that time Jesus stole some poor guy's donkey. <laughs> Just something a bit more honest, you know? Now we assume he gave it back, but it's not explicitly mentioned in the texts. The most scholars give Jesus the benefit of the doubt here, presume this is a borrowing, not a stealing. But he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, say other parts of scripture, so it's kind of his to begin with. I don't know, it gets a little messy. Too tricky for me. So what kind of animal though, more to the point, did he borrow? A donkey's colt, which is oddly specific. The background here is the prophet Zechariah. Luke is signaling that what's going on is the fulfillment of words written down long time ago. We're gonna take a closer look at that symbolism in a moment, but let's first read on a bit in Luke to see how things unfolded. Verse 32, the two disciples entered the village and found the colt exactly like Jesus had said. While they were untying it, the owners confronted them, as you would, right? <laughs> what are you doing? The disciples replied, we need this donkey for the Lord. After they brought the colt to Jesus, they placed their prayer shawls on its back, and Jesus rode it as he descended the Mount of Olives toward Jerusalem. As he rode toward the city, people spontaneously threw their prayer shawls like a carpet on the path in front of him. We started out by saying Palm Sunday is tricky. Now, on the surface, Luke's text's not too tricky yet. This is just the tip of the trickiness iceberg. Aside from the fact, of course, that events took place precisely as Jesus said they would. That's tricky. The donkey was there, tied up by the people who owned it, by whom the disciples were confronted, and they tell the owners, Jesus needs a donkey. And apparently they're good with it. No further questions are asked as far as we know. So curious about that. But it gets trickier. 
when we hear the prophetic words being evoked here out of Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. Lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I just love the, the uh, juxtaposition of the words here. We've got king, triumphant, victorious, humble? What? There's clues already going on in that text. Let's keep going. How will he be triumphant? Verse 10. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Whew, what a text. Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan suggest there were not one, but two processions going on in that first Holy Week. From the west came Pilate. Which way is west? Someone who's directionally that way, right? Well, I just wanted to help gesture appropriately because there's a lot of directionally challenged things going on in this morning. So I just wanted to be appropriate. Thank you for your help. From the west, he said confidently, came Pilate draped in the garish glory of imperial power, right? War horses, swift chariots, gleaming armor. He moved in with the Roman army as Passover began to make sure nothing got out of hand. Insurrection was in the air with the memory of God's powerful deliverance of the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt. And from the east came another procession, a commoner's procession. Jesus in an ordinary robe, riding on a donkey's colt. These precise preparations strongly suggest that Jesus has planned a highly ritualized, symbolic, prophetic event, an acted parable. Luke has in mind, and wants his readers to bear in mind, the prophecy of Zechariah, the coming of a new kind of king, a king of peace who will completely dismantle the weaponry of war. Now things are getting tricky. Dr. Will Gaffney speaks eloquently and convincingly about our North American obsession with kings and kingdoms. We are infatuated with monarchy, she writes. Look at all of those historical and not so historical novels and movies and binge-worthy and cringe-worthy series. Game of Thrones had a cult-like following and I was among its converts. Monarchy is seductive and not just for the Bridgertons. For me, it's all about the jewelry, but even then, I can't forget how many of those jewels are the fruit of conquest, pillage, and slaughter. At the same time, I'm also fascinated by stories of these figures from history who at the tender age of 13, 14, and 15 took on the world and conquered a country or continent like Cleopatra, Alexander, and my personal favorite, Genghis Khan. I also have no small amount of appreciation, she continues, for those girls who were told all their lives that they could not lead a nation because of their gender, but did it anyway, like Elizabeth I. 
What has really been cultivated and conditioned in us is not just appreciation for overcoming the odds in whatever culture and context you find yourself in. Rather, we have been taught to covet that crown. Dr. Gaffney goes on to describe the many actually good reasons that we have to crown ourselves and our children from pageants to proms to birthdays to New Year's Eve to wedding tiaras. She says, there's nothing wrong with our crowns and tiaras. In fact, we are telling monarchy that you are not the only one entitled to wear a crown. We are every bit as worthy to wear our crowns in this life and the next. We do not require your approval or permission. Yeah, some snaps for Dr. G. Woo. And then this, she says, the crown itself is not the problem, but what it represents to those who see it as more than an ornament or a party favor. She keeps going. You see, it's good to be king in and out of the scriptures. Power, wealth, control, fear, obedience, wine, women, and song in the old formulation, no limits, an ethical pass from the moral and legal codes of your people, at least in theory. In reality, monarchy is steeped in treachery and treason, murder and mayhem, rebellion and revolution. All too often, monarchy comes to a sudden gory end, a sword point at knife point, or the cutting edge of a guillotine. Yet, people still sign up for the job because it's good to be king. I'm intentionally using masculine language because in the world of the scriptures, it didn't matter how much power and authority a woman had as pharaoh, queen, majesty, or monarch. There was always some man somewhere plotting to take her throne just because she was a woman. Even when she could and would be a better choice than whatever sorry man who was plotting against her. The next part I gotta put up on screen because y'all are gonna wanna read it again. It's a few slides long, you're not gonna mind, I promise. It's Dr. Will Gaffney. It's good to be king, she says, but Jesus didn't wanna be king. He said, you can keep that crown. He rode into town on a working class beast of burden. He came not to conquer a throne, but to surrender to a cross. The gospel reading from the liturgy of the Palms says that Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, on a donkey, not on a royal steed like Richard the Lionheart, on a donkey, not in a war chariot like Pharaoh and Caesar, on a donkey, not an elephant like Hannibal, but on a donkey, one of the least valued pack animals and beasts of burden. A donkey. I am sure there were folks who made fun of Jesus and his borrowed donkey. I imagine some of his disciples were embarrassed by the one they called rabbi and teacher and Lord and master on such an undignified animal. But Jesus paid them no mind. Last slide. Jesus rode into Jerusalem in a majesty for which we have no words. Oh, I love that sentence. A majesty the people recognized when they cut down the branches, or did they recognize it? Man, jury's out on this one. I'd love to have a discussion with Dr. Gaffney on that one and just get her take. 
We'll keep going with the quote. A majesty the people recognized when they cut down the branches along the way to prepare for him a royal pathway. Pretty much exactly like this. I think we did it perfect. Um, they recognized what Isaiah's successor writing in his name described, that there is a majesty that would make the monarchs of this world get up off their thrones and bow down. A majesty that only God could grant. In that lesson in Isaiah, it is the majesty of the power of God to restore even the broken and dispersed nation of Israel to glory. Come on. I had to quote Dr. Gaffney at length this morning because there's no way I could say these things any better. Jesus rode into Jerusalem in a majesty for which we have no words. Are you kidding me? Preach, sister. It's good to be king, but Jesus didn't want to be king, at least not in the way we wanted him to be king. As Jesus descends into the city on a donkey, he redefines kingship and monarchy. He came not in the way of chariots, and war horses and battled bows. Those are the means of power he came to eradicate. Jesus came not with violence, coercion, or a sword. He came to reign in peace, indeed to command peace to the nations. Not with power over, but with power under and alongside. Jesus' rule is one of love and liberation and solidarity from below. Amen? This text, this iceberg spike, this acted parable we remember and celebrate on this day is in every way a subversion. It's a reversal. It's a complete indictment of our obsession with monarchy, with coveting the crown and keeping the crown at any cost. It's good to be king, but Jesus didn't want to be king, not in the way we wanted him to be. He said, you can keep that crown. Let's hear the remainder of the text, starting at verse 37. As soon as he got to the bottom of the Mount of Olives. Now remember, we're following Jesus on a literal and symbolic descent into Holy Week. It's a downward trajectory. As soon as he got to the bottom, the crowd of his followers shouted with a loud outburst of ecstatic joy over all the mighty wonders of power they had witnessed. They shouted over and over highest praises to God for the one who comes as king in the name of the Lord. Heaven's peace and glory from the highest realm now comes to us. Some Jewish religious leaders who stood off from the procession said to Jesus, teacher, order your followers to stop saying these things. Jesus responded, listen to me. If my followers were silenced, the very stones would break forth with praises. So for a moment, the focus shifts to the response of the crowd, the crowd on whom I kind of think the significance of the Zechariah prophecy seemed to be mostly lost. What exactly were they responding to? According to Luke, last part of 37 says, they shouted with joy over all the mighty wonders of power they had experienced. Luke seems to be implying a subtext that they wanted more of exactly that. It's just what they were waiting for. So they are absolutely stoked in the moment because in their minds, at last, change is here. It's come. King Jesus is finally going to smash some Roman heads. More trickiness, though. 
in the form of paradox. Why? Because this same crowd that's now bursting with hosannas in just a few days will be shut and crucify with just as much fervor, if not more. Palm Sunday's tricky, largely because of its contrasts and its contradictions. Those contradictions live in us too. We hear it in the hymn sung, alternating between happy triumph and inevitable crucifixion. We see it in Jesus himself as the embodiment of a majesty for which we have no words, choosing to ride a borrowed colt. We see it in the destination and in the crowds as the city that welcomes him and lays down cloaks and palm branches will later scream mercilessly for his blood. One writer said it this way, for now at least, the greatest hopes for peace are hidden from those who wish for it. And things are tricky for the religious leaders too. It's getting a bit too rambunctious for the Pharisees. They want the crowd to simmer down. We don't know all the reasons, but we can guess. Are they embarrassed by the wild ecstatic praise? It could be that they're feeling the heat of the moment being too political. That the empire will retaliate, things could get violent real soon. Almost certainly disagree with the notion that Jesus is the Messiah. Whatever the reasons are, they, they can't keep the crowd at bay. On a day like this, it'd be asking like a choir not to sing the hallelujah chorus at the end of Handel's Messiah. And then Jesus' response, which seems to contain a mix of feelings. One more capon quote. It would seem that even though Jesus has been aware all along that he is riding straight into the teeth of non-acceptance, the fact now hits him emotionally in a powerful way. Everything he has predicted is now coming home to roost and the sad enormity of it overwhelms him with both pity and anger. Pity that the city cannot accept him, anger that it will not. A mix of feels indeed. In the verses that immediately follow our text, verses 41 and 42, we see Jesus weeping over the city, weeping over Jerusalem because they do not recognize, cannot recognize the things that make for peace. What about us? Can we accept him? Will we? As those who profess to desire peace, will we follow Jesus in the way that leads to peace? This way of self-giving, co-suffering, cruciform love. This painting is called Triumphal Entry. It's by a Zambian artist named Emmanuel Nsama from 1969. as a way of coming to a close with a bit of reflection. We'll keep this image on the screen. After a short silence, I'm gonna read a poem by Brian Zond called Peace Donkey on Palm Sunday. So as you look and listen, perhaps closing your eyes or alternating between eyes closed and open, maybe recognize in Jesus the pathway that leads to peace. And maybe walk together with him this holy week every step of the way. After the poem, uh, we'll be invited to the table and we'll walk through our table litany together. So let's have a brief silence and then I'll offer a poem.
the king approaches on Palm Sunday, forsaking the glorious war horse to ride a ridiculous peace donkey. Gentle as the wings of a dove, inaugurating the reign of love. Conquerors come with hubris, blood, and violence, riding stallions of famine, war, and pestilence. They tell me Genghis Khan murdered all of 10 million. The Prince of Peace comes without breaking a bruised reed. Swords are now for plowing. Spears are now for pruning. I'll tell you for a fact, Jesus of Nazareth killed nary a one. If Hosanna praises Rocket's red glare, weep over Jerusalem. If Hosanna acclaims kingdom come, let the rocks cry.